Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, greetings and salutations from the great state of Alabama this Sunday evening. Hope everybody had a great day and a good opportunity to go and worship the Lord. And if not, that maybe next Sunday you will. If you're not involved in the church, I'd encourage you to get involved in the church in your area and be proactive in advancing the kingdom of God. So tonight, we're continuing our journey through Ecclesiastes. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then as always, you can go find us on YouTube and Rumble and on the podcast, RK Ministries podcast, wherever podcasts are found. Uh, Didn't put last week's up on YouTube and Rumble yet. I'll try to do that again. We had a little thunderstorm and that kind of stuff. And so didn't get it done last Sunday night and then just was lazy the rest of the week. No, I didn't have time to get it done any other time. So we'll try to eventually get them up there on YouTube and Rumble. But mostly you'll find them on the podcast. If they're not there, they always go up on the podcast. So I'd encourage you to find that and like it and share it, subscribe it, and so we can continue to advance the audience. Uh, so, hey, still waiting for feedback on Theology Thursday. We've done the last Andy Stanley fundamental list uh, sermon and talked about some of the, the issues that uh, in the theological aspect of that there. And so uh, just curious one more opportunity because thursday i'll have to make a decision if if i do it uh what we're going to do but if you got any input on that i was thinking about either going through a systematic theology or doing something related to church uh history and so um, think about those two things if you got something there let me know if not we'll make a decision and just do something that we think will be beneficial <coughs> to all of us But suffice it to say, tonight we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And I'll I'll just read all of them. I think it gives us a good idea to hear hear the context, and then we can come back and and discuss it. So, the Bible says, in chapter 2, beginning verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this all was vanity. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the, during the few days of, of their life. Verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted into them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools for which which to water the forest of growing trees. I I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were uh, born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. 
I got singing, or excuse me, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eye desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And thus ends the reading of God's word, and may God bless the reading of his word. So, <clears throat> we come to Solomon's continued search for the meaning of life. And now we, we saw or we heard in this uh, section of scripture that familiar phrase, under heaven, he used this time uh, early on, uh, under the sun. And so we, we got to always keep that in our mind when we're going through what Solomon, and again, I believe Solomon is the one who is writing this. I personally believe Solomon is telling us about <clears throat> the things that he has experienced in in his life. He is, in fact, Koheleth, the preacher, the, the one who called the assembly to instruct uh, people. And so I think he is instructing them in this, in that sense, it, you know, maybe it's appropriate that they call him preacher because in this sense, it is a, it is a message. It is a, is it a, it is a sermon, uh, <clears throat> whereby he is instructing men on the vanity of trying to find meaning in life apart from God. You remember we talked early on about, um, this aspect of this kind of equation, uh, model, and we have life on this side and everything that is in life under the sun. And if we have, if we put God on the other side, then we can ultimately in everything we see under the sun, we can find meaning if we have God on the other side of the equation. But if we remove God from the other side of the equation, then life is meaningless and life is empty and, and vanity. And we heard Solomon use that phrase twice at the beginning and at the end has been his pattern so far. He tells us what he's about to do and he goes, he goes ahead and gives us the outcome of this experiment that he uh, went on, which was vanity, striving after the wind, another common phrase in Ecclesiastes. So his conclusion at the very beginning of this experiment he's about to unfold for us is that I come to the other side of it and realize that life merely under this sun, even pursuing all of these pleasures is nothing but vanity. It is empty and meaningless it's like trying to grab a hold of the wind. You, you can reach all you want, but you never really have anything of substance in, in your hand. And so that's kind of where we are. We just got to keep that in our mind that he's, he's describing for us life apart from uh, God. And it's not that Solomon, the preacher Koheleth, is, is an atheist because he talks about God and the things that God gives men to do under the sun. And he, at the end, he's going to come back around and tell us what the end of all things are. And it's ultimately to oh, obey the Lord. Uh, so it's not that he's an atheist. He's just telling us if this is the way you look at life, the way you come at life in really a, a secular humanistic kind of way, then you'll never find meaning in life. And so he goes through all of these different 
a test. Last time, uh, it was wisdom. He tried to find meaning in life in wisdom. And again, it was merely uh, uh, human wisdom, earthly wisdom, wisdom under the sun, uh, apart from any wisdom coming from God. <clears throat> this time, it's pleasure, and he'll bring in wisdom again, I think, maybe in the next time, and then, then we'll move on. He'll, 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 he'll carry us on this journey of trying to find this meaning in life. And so this one is one that, you know, while wisdom is an aspect that we, I think, follow after in Western culture, and especially in America, right? We, we have come to the place where we believe that, we believe, rightly or not, okay, because I, I don't necessarily believe this. It's true, but we have come as a culture to believe it's true that a person ought to go to college, that they ought to go and get an education. And most companies nowadays require a person to have an education, a, a bachelor's degree in something, right? Whether it's part of what they're getting the job for or not, to, to have that uh, have that time they spent in, in college. And so we value learning, but I think sometimes we, we esteem academic and academia to a higher level than we ought sometimes. But anyway, that's another topic for another day. So there are some who seek to find meaning in life through constant wisdom and constant learning. And then today, it's talking about self-indulgence or pleasure. And there are those in this world who try to find meaning in life merely from pleasure, merely, merely from uh, a humanistic standpoint uh, and trying to find meaning, uh, meaning, is, and meaning, meaning and happiness in life through human experience and particularly human pleasure all the things that would bring us pleasure or happiness in our life and so this is where solomon is taking us and and i got to thinking about that because we do live in <clears throat> primarily a secular humanistic uh, world we have a lot of christian values in america founded on judeo christian values and for the great majority of our uh, existence as a nation that has dominated our culture but slowly and but surely uh, secular humanism has taken center stage right front and center and uh, we're moving deeper and deeper into that ideology i think in our in our nation and so i got to thinking what, what is it that secular humanists think about the meaning of life and so i looked it up you can go to secularhumanism.org, uh, and on there you will find this statement of secular humanists. As secular humanists, we believe in the central importance of the value of human happiness here and now. So again, it's finding happiness, as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes, merely under the sun, the here and the now. What is it that in our life would bring us happiness? And so we ought to pursue that, and we ought to promote that. Uh, then you, there's a... This this was this comes from journals. Uh, it's a Chicago University uh, journal website, uh, journals.uschicago.org, and it was an article dealing with atheism, and in particular the uh, I think it's the British Humanist Atheist or Agency or Age, A, Atheist <coughs> Organization. Anyway, there's a bunch of British humanists who are mostly atheists. And I just got to thinking about or seeing some of the things that they they uh, shared on there as to how they find meaning in life, what they that identify what their worldview is, and 
here's one that it, it came to be the atheist uh, bus uh, campaign instead of riding the Christian bus anyway, riding riding the religious bus or the religious train. Um, they they came up with this idea of the atheist train. You know, uh, philosoph. Uh, um, uh, not a real literal train, but just, just riding this figurative train, this way of thinking, way of life. So we ride this atheist bus. And the slogan of the atheist bus was, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy life. So again, you would think the pleasures of life under the sun. And, and to be honest and fair to them, that's not necessarily all, that, that doesn't necessarily mean exclusive exclusively the vain pleasures of life or the or, or the sinful pleasures of life rather so their idea is whatever makes whatever brings pleasure and happiness in our life and we find that in this existence because there's nothing beyond this existence is what the secular humanist uh, would say uh, here, here's another quote from that page being happy uh, and being good without God, that's another one of their catchphrases, to be happy and be good without God, is a commitment both to pleasure and to progress. Uh, so they'd be progressives, and they are seeking after the idea of pleasure. What brings me pleasure in this life, as Solomon would say, would say under the sun. And then there was one uh, CEO of this particular group or leader of this group who's a well-known atheist. I'd never heard of him before, but according to this article, he was and uh, one of the things that he says, his name is Andrew Copson, uh, C-O-P-S-O-N. Uh, and again, that's on journals.uchicago.org. He says in this article, or he's quoted as saying in this article, Well, if you're going to go to wantonness and debauchery, I suppose you might as well travel first class. And that's in response to a Christian who is saying to them, you know, secular humanism ultimately leads to wantonness and debauchery. And he says, hey, if you're going to go that way, you might have, I think the Christian said it was a, it is a first class trip to uh, wantonness and debauchery. And he says, well, if you're going to go there, go first class all the way. So that's the mindset of the secular, uh, secular humanist. I see I had another quote here. Let's, see if, well, let's just read it. It's, again, it's from this Anderson Copson. Just to give you a flavor of the ideology of um, a lot of the people who are in leadership positions in this world, a lot of people who are in academia in this world, a lot of people who uh, you may rub shoulders with at the, the marketplace or at the workplace or at your school in the society in which we live today. And again, he, he's, he's quoted as saying this. Uh, as with what we see in some of West uh, portraits, and he's talking about another person in this article, uh, the barbs and jibs have uh, an ethical balance here all the more so when they pertain to the pleasures that people might rightly enjoy as human beings with one life to live and again that's the idea one you only got one life right we'll talk about that in a minute uh, so live it to the full this isn't about hedonism for hedonism's sake so again to be fair they're not saying it's all about sinful debauchery and the pleasures of sin uh, but in one sense that's really the summation of what it is because of this next statement. This is about being good without God. Now, if, if you were with me in Romans or if you've listened to any of the sermons that we've done through 
Romans. If you haven't, go back and find them on the podcast and listen to them, in particular in Romans chapter 3. See, that's a misunderstanding of the of biblical anthropology, and, and rightly so, because these people are, in fact, atheists, right? They don't believe that there is a God. Well, they're more agnostic if you go by the slogan we had earlier, because in the slogan, it was, <clears throat> there may not be a God. Well, that's more agnostic than it is atheist, right? And there are those who make the argument that they're probably no true atheists, really. But that's another argument, another discussion for another day. But the point is, this is all about sinful debauchery because you can't be good without God. Without God regenerating a person's heart, without God in Christ redeeming a soul, you cannot, you're not good. You are, in fact, evil and rebellious against God. Therefore, uh, you are not good. And even what Jesus said right there is none good, but God. You remember when the rich young ruler came to him and said, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good teacher? There's none good but God. And we know Jesus is God. Jesus was good. Uh, but the point that he was making to this uh, rich young ruler is there's only one person, one being in this universe that is good, right? And you're not it. <clears throat> God is. And so in that sense, it is all about sin because Without God redeeming us, we are all destined to live our lives in sinfulness. And so that <coughs> leads us into where Solomon is going. He's going to really walk the path of uh, secular humanism, if you will, and try to find meaning in life through the pleasures of life, through those things that bring him pleasure. Some of those things blatantly sinful. Some of those things maybe on the surface don't appear to be blatantly sinful, but a lot of these things that we read, you will hear there are things that we do in life every day. There are things that we're engaged with in life uh, every day, if you really think about it. And if that is all there is, Solomon comes to the conclusion, then there is no meaning in life. What is the use if this is all there is? And so let's see this journey that Solomon goes on to find Meaning in life apart from God under the sun merely through pleasure. Now, he, he tells us he's going to go on this experiment. That's the first, sec first section, verse 1. Um, he, he explains this experiment to us. And there's something to be noted about the pronouns in this passage. If, if you look, I counted, and hopefully I counted them right, uh, correctly. There, there are 17 uses of the personal pronoun I. He starts this section off with the personal pronoun I, and there are 20 uses of the personal pronouns me or myself. And so in that, just in, in that, if you look at these pronouns in these 11 verses, there is this self-centered aspect of self-indulgence, and we'll read that all of these things that he is doing in verses 3 through uh, 10, all of these things, or 3 through 8, I think it is, all these things that he is doing are for himself in that sense. Now, I get I get it. They affected other people as he'd done them, but it was merely for himself to bring pleasure for himself. And, it, and if it brought pressure to other people or even if it harmed other people, maybe he didn't, he didn't necessarily worry about those aspects of it. It was more about bringing pleasure to himself. So at the heart of this is that self-centered uh, idea. It's all about me, myself, and I. And so he starts, I said in my heart, now again, we talked about the heart in the biblical terms. Uh, we, we got this concept in Western, uh, you know, thought that the heart is about, uh, about emotion and love merely, right? In, in particular about mo uh, love and, and emotion. But in, 
and it's only one aspect. It's all, it's all of the emotive aspects of life. But from, from a biblical perspective, and there have been people who've made sermons and arguments before that in the Old Testament, it's more of a, of a lower uh, part of the human anatomy, like the gut, uh, uh, the pit of the stomach kind of deal. Um, but either way, both of them, because in the English, it's just generally always translated heart in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament when we're talking about the same aspect of humanity. It's, it's the inner person, the inner being, the inner man, uh, which involves, as uh, Martin Lord Jones would often say, the mind, the will, and the emotion. So it involves all three of those, our mind, our will, and our emotion. So it's the, I like to say, the central processing unit. It, it is the real us, right? The totality of who we are in our inner being. So he, he looks within himself and he says to himself, we can maybe use it in that way. Come now, I will test. Now, that's a deliberate act or deliberate experiment that he's about to engage on. He is willfully, intentionally about to engage in an experiment to find meaning in life under the sun through this avenue of pleasure. So he says, I will test uh, you, meaning his inner being, his, his, who he really is, his soul, I'm going to test you with pleasure. All right, that, that's, the, that's the experiment that he's going to go on. And then he says, enjoy yourself. So again, it's about this idea of, of finding the greatest pleasure uh, in life. That which brings you the greatest pleasure in life is the ultimate goal of this secular humanistic mindset. And we see that all around us uh, today. And so Solomon sets out on this journey. Now, he gives us, a synopsis, if you will, of the ending right at the beginning. But he says, behold, in other words, listen up, okay? Uh, I'm about, I went on this journey uh, with pleasure. This is what I said to myself, enjoy yourself. But here's the conclusion I came to, listen up. This also, just like wisdom, this also was vanity. In other words, it was meaningless. Do not do it, is what he's saying. If you're trying to find meaning in life under the sun, apart from God, just through the pleasures of life, he says, you're never, ever going to find meaning that way. You will never be satisfied. You'll never find completeness. You'll never find fulfillment because it's all vanity. And so he goes on to describe for us this experiment that he enjoined. Uh, he says in verse two, uh, I sought, uh, I said of laughter. So the first pleasure that he tried to enjoy and find meaning in, find meaning of life in, is through what I labeled entertainment. Some people would labor it, labor it comedy because he uses the term laughter. Uh, and he says it's, it's mad, but I, I think it encompasses more than that, entertainment altogether, which would include uh, comedy. And I think we see that later on because he uses the idea of singers that come in. So there's this element of entertainment uh, that is there. So he seeks, uh, he seeks meaning of life through entertainment. And he says, it is madness and, and of, uh, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? So he says this, this entertainment is madness. It can't bring meaning to life. 
in of this pleasure what use is it if it can't bring meaning to my life it's useless and again you know there's a lot of people spend a lot of time on entertainment today we we all do it right we we have on our phones right now they, they, we, we spend so much time on on our phones or in front of televisions or in front of computers that in, at least on their mobile devices they've got a thing now that you can you can control your screen time right you can make your phone tell you hey you need to get off of this and, and do something else right and so we're trying to find meaning in everything and sometimes that's like all of these, I think, it is a way of escape for us. So whenever we, uh, maybe you're going through a tough stretch in life. Maybe you're having difficulty in life. Maybe your job is causing you stress and anxiety. Maybe your relationships are causing you stress and anxiety. Whatever it is, you try to find that, you try to try to hide the pain and difficulty of life because you see no meaning in some of these things uh, that are causing you difficulty and you try to hide it in uh, entertainment and so you go nothing wrong with entertainment in and of itself right I think uh, God gave us entertainment and we ought to use entertainment in a wise way and it's a way of relief and laughter is a medicine the Bible the Bible says so we can use it as a way of relief but just like anything else we can be we can become addicted to it or we can abuse it and we can try to uh, look at all the you know the 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 things that we see on the screens right that tell us this is how we ought to be and how life really is and we begin to have a skewed idea of the reality that's around us and we try to measure our lives up against what is fake on television or on youtube or on you know whatever uh, media device you look at or media uh, however you consume media and we we think that the life is a is more like the fairy tale than it is the reality that we ultimately experience uh, every day and so he tried to find meaning and in, in this pleasure of entertainment and he said it was useless and then the other one that he goes into and it's a little uh it goes into a little broader it's uh the, the pleasure of alcohol is what i call it because he speaks about wine in particular uh and of course in our day wine in all types of alcohol I, I would say in our day there are a lot of people who try to find pleasure through or seek the pleasure of alcohol uh, and maybe again, I think a lot of times we use it in a negative way in our life to try to cover up. I don't use alcohol. I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink uh, one ounce of alcohol. And again, that's another topic for another day, whether you should or should not drink alcohol. There are places in the Bible that say, hey, you know, strong drink is bad. It will lead you places you don't want to go. Uh, you ought to abstain from it. Those who are leaders, elders in the church should not be addicted to it, should not be, you know, consumed by strong, strong drink. But then Paul tells Timothy, hey, take a little wine for your uh, stomach and then the bible says in other places don't be drunk with wine but be filled with the holy spirit so the implication is it's okay to drink it just not be drunk by it don't be an alcoholic or don't 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 get drunk and use it in excess and again there are more and more people who you know at one time in christianity especially in baptist circles alcohol was hey that is a no-no that's tab taboo right and uh, the only difference you, you guys probably heard the jokes before it's one of those preacher jokes right uh that my wife says are never funny but I'm going to tell it anyway. Uh, so you've all heard, heard the joke probably in some version of it, the difference between Baptist and Catholic in a, in a liquor store, the difference between Baptist and Methodist in the liquor store or whatever. You can plug in the other one. It's always Baptist and somebody. But the difference between the Baptist and whoever in the liquor store is that the, the Methodists at least will, uh, they will, they will talk to one another. <laughs> the Baptists won't talk to each other in the liquor store, right? As if Baptists, you know, 
they don't drink or supposedly but more and more people are beginning to accept this idea of drinking alcohol as the norm in our society and i'm not going to say a person who drinks is going to hell that's not what the bible teaches obviously but the reason i'm a teetotaler is because of my dad and and i I even put that in these notes right here because he he says solomon in verse three i search with my heart again the inner man uh so this involved his mind will and emotion and the totality of who he is every aspect of his mental uh, cognition he used uh to make this decision i search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine and so, you know, I thought about that. How many people today try to cheer their body with wine? How many people today try to find pleasure in, in alcohol and drink? Just on the way back home from church today, right? Uh, pulled in to get gas at a service station. Pulled in to get gas at the service station. There's this young guy, right? I, I must, you know, obviously probably 21 because he's buying alcohol, but he comes out with two cases of alcoholic beverage to put in the back of his car. And there are the two, two young, there are actually two young guys in the truck. There are two young girls in the car behind them that are following them. So obviously they're going somewhere to drink this alcohol. And again, nothing to say that they're going to hell for drinking alcohol. But I'm just saying that is becoming the norm in our society. Not that it hadn't always been. People have always drank. I know that. I'm not that naive. But it just seems to me, even in Christian circles, that drinking alcohol is becoming more and more normalized in society. And it's not as much a taboo. But I'm just here to tell you there are dangers in alcohol. And you'll never find meaning in life if you're trying to find it through alcohol. And a lot of people use alcohol just like they do entertainment to try to block out the pains of life, to try to cover over the difficulties of life, to try to run away from the difficulties of life. And they consume alcohol to make their minds uh, forget that, and it affects different per- per- people in different ways. And my dad was one of those who was an alcoholic, and he was an alcoholic all of his life. I used to always say, or still say, you know. And again, not to air out all our family history, but when I was four year old, four years old, my parents divorced, and my dad was an alcoholic then. He'd been drinking since he was sixteen, been smoking, you know, cigarettes since he Winston cigarettes, and he'd been drinking red labeled Bud, Budweiser since he was. He was 16, and uh, I think he used it mostly to drown out the pain. Uh, because I think, he, I think personally, I don't know that he never stopped loving uh, my mother. And again, this is not to bash either one of them. I think it's just the reality. I always say his theme song was that that one that uh, George Jones sang. And you know, I, I think they probably he probably sang it before he and Tammy Wynette got got divorced. But uh, it reminds me of that because that that song you know says that he stopped loving her today, the, the day they put the reef on his door. And I think that was his life because I think he went deeper into alcoholism after he uh after he and my mom were divorced and again not not saying it's her fault it's his choice and he chose to drink he chose to be uh, an alcoholic but anyway uh long story short alcohol is not always not a good thing right i, I have seen the devastating effects of alcohol on the person and on the family of that person uh, and so for me, I said, I'm not going to follow down that road. That is that is a non-starter for me. I'm not going to touch alcohol. Obviously, you know, medicine, those kind of things that have alcohol in them, I got it, right? But I'm not going to be uh, that way and, and, and drink alcohol, and it's not going to come into my house. And if you come over here and visit us and we have a party, you're not going to bring it here. Uh, you know, and those kinds of things. But anyway, that that's my personal opinion uh, because I've seen the damage that it does. And it never, 
It never satisfies and it never covers up the real pain and the real difficulties of life because you always have to go back, right? And then you come back for more and for more and for more. And that's, that's what happened to, to Solomon. That's the conclusion that he comes to with this idea of alcohol. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. He says, my heart still guideth me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly. All right. So again, this idea of this wisdom that keeps coming up all along the way, at first it seems kind of confusing. I think that you would say he's going, he's doing all these, what we would consider crazy ludicrous things, especially Christians who've read the whole book, right? And we've been redeemed by Christ and we understand there's no meaning really in this life apart from God. And so as we read this, when we look back and say, how can he say that wisdom's still there with him when he's doing all these crazy things? Well, you can look at it in one of two ways. You can look at it in that he's merely talking about the earthly aspect of wisdom or that he's maybe three ways. He's keeping his wits about him, even though he's doing all these crazy things, or this is referring to, which I believe, is this idea of this experiment that he is telling us about that he's intentionally going on these experiments to test these theories and he's doing it through wisdom right so you know you can look at it in any one of those ways but uh we saw this idea of folly before associated with wisdom because when he was seeking out purpose merely in wisdom he found out that there is no purpose and so he tried folly right so he had wisdom and folly he tried in the last section and he found no purpose apart from god under the sun in either wisdom or uh or folly and so he goes on to say, this is again, um, trying to see which verse that is in. If you saw my paper, I got interspersed amongst diverse notes and things uh, along, along uh, the way. This, this is still verse three. All right, still verse three. So beginning in verse three again, so you can get the whole verse. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart still guided me with wisdom and how to lay hold of on folly hey a lot of times when you try out wine there's a lot of folly that goes along with it till i might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven now that we we've already talked about that under heaven is synonymous with under the sun it is saying doing life apart from god merely from a human perspective on this earth it's all temporal it's all fleshly it's all earthly uh, without any spiritual aspect to it or any idea the, of God uh, coupled with it. And then he says, uh, to, to see what is good for the children of man to do under uh, heaven during the few days of their life. And then that's one of those tautologies, uh, I think you'd call it, uh, as a truism. And we talked about this. There are elements in this that are absolutely true to us. You know, even even though he's doing this as a as an experiment in, in, in some ways, there are true elements to us, to for us in this, because all of us know the older we get, the more we are acutely aware of the fact that the days of our lives are very brief and very short. I'm 55 years old. Look at my life and say, man, where did 55 years go? 
because it can go because it seems just like yesterday i was having um I, I was getting married and we were having our first child a year year a little over a year later and you know life was just beginning as a married couple and now here i am 55 and life is gone that quick and the older i get the faster it seems to go and i know all that's perspective but uh we see the reality of it and hey if we're if we're honest with ourselves right if we're all honest with ourselves no matter how old you are able to live on this earth even those who, who make it to you know maybe the hundred or hundred and two or you know maybe the occasional hundred and three or whatever person a hundred years in this grand scheme of human history is just a blip on the timeline right this country it seems like it's ancient to most of us america but well i think 245 years if my memory serves me correctly and that may not be true but i know it's in the 240s i think it's 244 245 years that is amazingly short in the history of humanity so our life is like a vapor listen to what job says uh when he's uh dialoguing about this he says my days are swifter than a weaver shuttle and come to an end without hope and again you got to go read job and read the context about what's going on in job to understand fully everything that he's saying but uh you know and we don't get the weaver's shuttle because we don't see much weaving going on right now but the you know the quickness of that uh, back and forth motion weaving those fabrics but here's one you'll get from job and in, in job 9:25. my days are swifter than a runner uh, they flee away there's there's they see no good all right and so and of course job job is in the midst of difficulty in, in his life at that moment but the reality of that is true our life is a vapor and james even tells us that in his epistle right life is a vapor is here in a moment is here for a moment and is gone and that's a reality for all of us and a hundred years from now nobody will even know i existed unless my you know great 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 grandchildren uh, have a picture of me on the wall or they are they're interested in in uh, you know genealogy and 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 all that kind of stuff and they keep the family trees or whatever uh, even even a lot of them will forget that i even uh, existed on planet earth and that's going to be the reality for most of us and, and so we need to we need to take advantage of what little bit of time in history that god has given us and you know, it's amazing to me, we're, we're not here by accident, right? We, we, are, we are absolutely not here by accident. One, one of my favorite, you know, passages in the book of Acts comes from Acts chapter 17. And obviously it is Acts, uh, Paul's sermon on Mars Hill when he's uh, giving those, uh, telling those Epicurean and Stoic philosophers about this God that they had called the, <coughs> excuse me, the unknown God. But there's a passage in there, and I forget exactly what verse uh some 30-ish comes in my mind but in that passage he says that god made from one man every every man uh and he determined the place and i'm paraphrasing the places and the times and the boundaries in which they would exist and so you are here it's looking up there's a dirt dauber flying around the little room here let be you you and i are here in this moment in history in the place that you are on purpose for a purpose it's no accident no matter who you are 
It is no accident that you are here and you are where you are. And we just we just read in a Sunday school this morning uh, at church when we were going through Jeremiah, explore the Bible from Lifeway, the Southern Baptist curriculum. And in Jeremiah, the in, in this portion of Jeremiah, they're going in. They're, God's sending Israel into exile, Babylonian captivity. And so God, through Jeremiah, sends encouragement to those people who are in Babylon. They're in a foreign country. They are exiles. They are they are sojourners in that country. And God essentially tells them, "Listen, hey, I'm the one who sent you there." Build a house. Get wives. Get your sons and daughters, wives, husbands and wives. Have children. Reproduce. Plant gardens. Be productive where I have put you. Pray for this place that I've put you in. Pray for its prosperity because when it prospers, you will prosper. So the point is, God's got a plan for you. In this brevity of life, God chose this specific time frame in history for you to exist for a purpose, for a reason. If we look at life from that perspective, then we'll see the meaning and the value of why we are here. But if we just look at it from a secular humanistic perspective, trying to find you know, life through the mere pleasures of humanity, of our flesh, then what is the purpose that I'm here for other than to you know, eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow I die. And I think that, remember we talked about this, this is what Solomon is trying to drive us to understand. We need to examine this, he says, and he's trying to he's trying to make us think about this in a in a intense way and realize that there is no life on this planet apart from God and we ought to it ought to drive us to God. But you know, we have a very similar philosophy today, don't we? You know, talking about alcohol since we're in that section. I think it was uh, slit malt liquor <clears throat> back in in the 70s, that one of their slogan was go for the gusto, right? Uh, go for the gusto in life. And, and again, nothing, again, I don't, I don't drink alcohol and I encourage you not to drink it, but nothing wrong with, with going after uh, things in life, right? Having goals and those kinds of things. As a matter of fact, the Lord tells us ha have dreams and have desires with this caveat. You roll all those dreams and desires onto the Lord and the Lord will direct your path. Right, so there's nothing wrong with trying to be productive. God asks us to do that. He demands of us to do that in, in in society. But when it's grabbed the gusto through the pleasures of life, and from a merely secular humanistic perspective, you need to understand there is no gusto to grab. But we have a similar phrase, and it's not a new phrase. It's just one that kind of came came to the forefront and was changed and tweaked to the it became an acronym uh right it's called it's the acronym yolo right the word yolo you only have one life right or you only live once so the idea in some ways i think some people mean it this way uh hey you know that's bad for you well yolo you only live once right i'm gonna do it anyway kind of thing so we, we have that kind of mentality sometimes, even among those of us who are believers. Hey, if you only live once, just do whatever, whatever it is you want to do. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you may die. Well, you and I need to understand what Solomon is trying to drive us to the conclusion of is that there is a purpose for you being here in this place, in this time, and God is that purpose. And you need to live your life in light of that, and you need to do everything you can to honor God with the life that he's given you in the place that he's planted you in that moment. And again, not to belabor this point too much, but I think it's something that we as Christians need to hear today because like I said this morning 
in Sunday school when we were talking about that. We have so commercialized Christianity. We have so commercialized the church in our society today. It has become, for the most part, a corporation. It's become, for the most part, a, a concert or an event that we come to that we, we have lost sight of what real Christianity for the average person is like. And we even, we even think that this idea of missions and this and how we please God and how we how we um, how we impact the kingdom is merely through those who go on these mission trips, right? And again, we ought to have missions and we ought to be about missions. We ought to be missions, you know, sending people around the world uh, to the best that we can. All of us can't do that and can't go, but we think those are the heroes of the faith, right? The ones that go overseas and those kinds of things. They have their plays. But I am convinced from God's word, especially when you read things like we read this morning in Jeremiah, when God says, hey, you, where, where I put you, you be prosperous for the kingdom of God right there. You impact your community for the kingdom of God right there. That's grassroots Christianity, and that's Christianity for the average Christian, right? For the average Christian, being, being a faithful follower of Christ is being faithful in your everyday life. It is the mom who is faithful to her husband and her children doing what God has called her to do. It is the father who is faithful to his wife and his children doing what God has called him to do. He's providing for his family. He's protecting his family. And he does, he does that day in and day out. For the Israelite, it was going and plowing that field and taking care of those animals and providing for his family. For you, it's whatever career God has allowed you to be part of, that you go there faithfully and you you honor him in what you're doing. Everything that you put your hand to, you do as if, as if it's unto the Lord and you honor God in your everyday lie and then when people ask you why it is you live the way you live you give a reason for the hope that lies within you that is is faithful christianity for the average christian and yes we can be intentional and we can you know volunteer the reason for the hope that's in us uh, when we're around people for uh, that need to hear the gospel of jesus christ but that's what you and i need to find is our purpose in life is we're never going to gain it through pleasure we're never going to gain fulfillment and and constant happiness through pleasure of the flesh uh, in particular alcohol here but we got to move on all right, so verse four, he goes on, and this is the next pleasure, the pleasure, what I call the pleasure of accomplishment, and there's a lot in here, um, and you could divide it up even more than than that in some ways, but this, this is accomplishment. He has arrived, if you will. Look at verse four. He says, I made great works, all right? And, and again, he's talking merely about construction works. He's an architect, if you, uh, if you will, and designed buildings and had buildings, buildings built. He built the temple of God, all right? Or at least he organized and, and managed that and built his own house. I think somewhere, I can't remember what passage, but I think it took him about 10 years to build his own uh, castle. Uh, so he built great things. Uh, so he's, he made these accomplishments. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. And again, this is that I, m me, myself, and I aspect of it. I, I, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So these, these vineyards, and I mean, these fruit trees he planted, it was like a forest of fruit trees. So he had great accomplishment in his life through the things that he was able to build with his hands, and that brought 
pleasure, and it brings pleasure to a lot of people. You might could even put career up there, right? And there are a lot of people in this world who try to find meaning in life through their career. It is, it is who they are is defined by what they do in their job or their career, right? And, and there are people who, that's for them, that is the totality of life. And they give and dedicate everything they are to that. Sometimes to the detriment of family, to the detriment of their, of their children and of their, of their wives, and to the detriment of the kingdom of God because they have no, no you know, real idea that they ought to be focusing on kingdom work rather than this merely earthly uh, temporal work that they're engaged in. Again, nothing wrong with having a career, right? Praise God if he gives you a career, he gives you a job, something you love to do, and you're good at it, right? You ought to be good at it, and you ought to do the best you can at it, but you ought to also understand that you're not defined by what it is that you do in that career. You're defined by God, and the only way to find real meaning and pleasure in life is not in a career, not in a job. It's in God, and then in in light of your relationship with God, you go and you work and you 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 engage in that career and that, that occupation with all your might to please God uh, in the way that you work in this world. And, you know, I think Solomon was trying to help us get to the point where we understand that. And then the next one he he uh, followed after. Uh, uh, I just I just call it seven and eight. I just call it the pleasure of uh, that wealth brings the pleasure of wealth and power. Uh, and again, this could correlate with his career. Uh, you could you could put it all into one big uh, area. But listen to what he says in verse seven. He says, "I bought male and female slaves and had slaves. Uh, some translations may have servants who uh, were born in my house." Again, I don't get thrown off by the, the word slave. I know that has uh, some negative connotations in our culture, obviously. Uh, and, and rightly so. The way sla- slavery was was is wrong, right? We don't advocate for slavery. But you got to understand, Solomon's talking from his perspective in his time period in his life, and that was a present reality in their life. Uh, and some of those people were indentured servants, where they uh, sold themselves into slavery to pay off debt, or, or uh, they they were there working off some sort of uh, debt. Uh, and then some were outright slaves that were bought uh, for Solomon to work in his house. But a lot of these people may have been people who were working to build these houses and build these, um, you know, these vineyards and all those kinds of things. But so he amassed a great uh, a workforce, if you will, however you want to look at that. Uh, he amassed this great workforce, which was part of uh, this empire that he had built. He says, I had great possessions and herds and flocks. He says, I had more than any who came before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. So again, he he had treasure coming from other nations, other kings to him, and he amassed for himself this amount of, of gold and silver and he had other lands and properties and provinces around uh the area outside of israel even that he uh that he owned listen there, there was no one like solomon before his time uh and he, he was the wealthiest man who had ever lived on earth and we know the wisest man who had ever lived on earth to his day uh, he, he was a phenomenon in that particular uh day he, he says he got singers 
both men and women, and may, many concubines, uh, the light of the, the delight of the sons of men. So this guy was living the high life, right? He, 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 to borrow another beer slogan, I think. He was living the high life. Uh, he had it made. He had it all. He had everything anybody could ever hope to have in life. If you're looking at success merely from uh, a, a perspective of accomplishment and wealth, uh, and being able to do whatever you want to do whenever you wanted to do it. Solomon was the man. He was the guy. There was nothing in his life that he left unturned to find this pleasure. And he pursued it with all of his might. He, whether it was power and having dominion over these servants and over these kingdoms, whether it was wealth in the herds and the flocks and the lands and the kingdoms, whether it was entertainment from these parties and these singers, or whether it was just plain out fleshly, you know, lust and desire and sex with these concubines. We, we know from 1 Kings 11 that he had, not only did he have concubines, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And, you know, there's a joke in there, um, right, that I, I won't uh, repeat about men with more than one wife, one, one wife, much less 300 concubines, right? So this guy, he would have been on the cover of every magazine, right? He, he would have been on the, you know, the, the, the who's who, wealthiest man kind of stuff. Listen to a couple descriptions of Solomon. And I, I believe this is Solomon that we're talking about in this, in this passage. Just from these descriptions, the internal evidence seems to point to Solomon. Just like verse number one talks about Solomon, the son of David, the king uh, over Israel. Uh, and then the, the preacher, Kohelith, who identifies himself in verse one as Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, is the one speaking. Because Kohelith, the preacher, begins to speak to us uh, in chapter one. And tell us this story. Look, listen to First Kings four twenty two through twenty three. Solomon's provision for one day. All right, this was Solomon's provision for one day. Was thirty cores of fine flour. I didn't look up what a core is. Uh, and sixty cores of meal. We might not understand those, but apparently it's a lot. How do I know that? Because listen to what else it says. This is for one day. Ten fat oxen. Not skinny ones. Ten fat oxen, twenty pasture-fed cattle, a hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelle, roebuck, and fatted fowl. That's one day. Now, that's a lifetime for for most more than a lifetime for most people. That was Solomon's provision for one day. This man had it all. 1 Kings 10, 4 through 5. And when, here, here's how the world <laughs> viewed this when they came in, right? And, and this, was no, this was no shabby person. When, when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Her breath was taken away by the amount of wealth and power that this man had at his disposal. It took her breath away, and she's a queen. This man had it all. He was living high on the hog. 
and yet and still, merely from that, Solomon says, it's all vanity and it's all grasping at the wind. There is no meaning in life, no real lasting meaning or value in life if this is all we have. And how many people today, that is exactly what they're fighting for. That is exactly what they're chasing after. Man, all you got to do is look at all the reality shows that are on television today. And, and again, I'm, I'm not talking about like the cooking shows and those kinds of things. That's one aspect of it. But the reality shows that deal with everyday human beings who are trying to catch their 15 minutes of fame. Why is it that people cross over if you live in Alabama? Why do they cross over to go to Georgia to buy that, that, that lottery ticket, right? Or, or whatever it is, I don't, Powerball or whatever it is. Why do they go over and do that? Or why do they go to Florida if they live close to the Florida line and try to buy that? Because they are searching for this. Because they think if they find this, that they will ultimately have the happiness and the joy and the peace that they're longing for. And what we have learned statistically is most of the people who come from nothing and go and win something like that in the millions or billions, it usually destroys their life rather than makes it better. Because there's never really any true meaning in, in wealth and power and stuff and pleasure. You can, you, can, you can mount up all the pleasure you want to, all the power you want to, all the wealth you want to. And if that's all you got, if that's all there is, then this life is meaningless and worthless. Because one day you're just going to die. And somebody else will get what you left. And there's no purpose in it. There's no meaning in it. So what is the point? What is the use? So why do you think that people who have that kind of world view, the secular humans of this world, why do you think for them it's okay to say, hey, we, we ought to have um, limitless abortion in all the world. They don't value human life. Why? Because for them, what's the point in value in human life? You're here for a minute and you're gone, that's it. Maybe it's even better for them, they might think, if they don't go through some of the pains of life and realize the things that I realize. Without God, there is no meaning. And you and I need to understand that because of God, every life has value. It's intrinsically value because you bear the image of, of God. Oh, let me read this quote. Um, I, I forgot to put down the author. It came out of the commentary I was reading. It says, Wine, women, and song. Uh, the Solomon of Ecclesiastes had it all. Today his face would have been on the cover of Fortune magazine in the annals or in the annual issue of the uh, wealthiest man in the world. His home would be featured in a photo spread with arch, uh, archaeological digest. The inner, inner, the uh, the interior, the exterior, from the wine cellar to the lavish gardens. Pop stars would sing at his birthday parties. Supermodels would dangle from his arms. Kind of sounds like the Hollywood elite of our day, right? Or the political elite of our day, uh, who have all the lavishings that this life could ever hope to offer them. They have everything that any human being could ever want or more than they could ever need. And yet and still, how many of them we see that have no true happiness or peace or meaning in life because they're trying to do all this and find all this meaning in that merely in merely this physical earthly life under the sun apart from a relationship with Almighty God. And that's what Solomon's trying to get us to understand. There is no meaning in life apart from God. And so the last uh, section, 9 through 11, he gives us his personal reflections, okay? 
So it begins in verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. An understatement, right? <laughs> because the queen of Sheba, she couldn't even, she couldn't, she couldn't bear it. It took her breath away how successful this guy was. Uh, all my wisdom remained with me. Again, that's the third time at least we've seen that statement in this passage. And again, we talked about the ways you can look at that. I, I think personally that this is Solomon reminding us that he understands this journey that he's on. He understands this experiment that he is in. And so he is in this intentional experiment. Uh, and verse 10, what my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So there was no pleasure stone unturned. Whatever fleshly pleasure you could think about, Solomon engaged in it. Koheleth, the preacher, engaged in it. For, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Again, that statement's kind of tricky. If he's answering this in verse 11, uh, to me, it, it becomes clearer. But maybe he's saying in that passage that the only reward for his toil was the temporary pleasure he got from that under the sun apart from God. If there is no God, then the only real reward for these things that he did was the mere fleeting pleasure. Because guess what? Tomorrow's another day. Tomorrow you're going to seek more pleasure and have to seek more pleasure and seek more pleasure. And so you're going to have to engage in more things to get more pleasure. So verse 11, he says, then I considered. So he stood back and he kind of took stock. Looking at all these things he just told us, all the things he experienced and all the things he done. He kind of stood, stood back and took stock. He says, so he said, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced in doing it. And behold, here's his conclusion. He says, I set my heart out to find pleasure. Enjoy yourself, right? And he says, I, I didn't, there's not one aspect of pleasure that I kept from my heart, from my, my inner being. There's nothing that I, that I withheld. I enjoyed every human pleasure that you can enjoy in this world. And this is the conclusion that he came from, came to, trying to find meaning, right? This is why he's doing this. I'm trying to find meaning in life under the sun with all the things that we do. And he says, I sought pleasure and I didn't waste any ounce of pleasure. And here's the conclusion he come from. Remember, this is under the sun without any thought of God. All was vanity and striving after wind. And this, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Here's the question. Is this all there is? And this is the conclusion that Solomon came to. After all this that he'd done, after all this pleasure that he had enjoyed, if this is all there is, it is empty and meaningless. There has to be more. There has to be more. And guess what? There's some of you who are listening to this or there's some people you know who need to listen to this, they're thinking the same thing. They're looking at their life. They're trying to find meaning. They're trying to find hope. They're trying to find joy in their life. And they're looking at their life and they're stepping back and they're saying, is this all there is? If this is all there is, it is meaningless. It's like a, like a hamster on a wheel. I'm going nowhere quick. 
And how do I know that? Just look at the things that we do in life. We, we are people who seek after pleasure. I looked a couple of these things up. Of the ways that Solomon talked about pleasure. And some of the things that we, we do. Uh, that we consider pleasurable things to do. Entertainment. Americans. In total. $203 billion dollars. In entertainment, I think that was an older quote, like 2019, 2021, somewhere in there. Bureau of Labor and Statistics. What about alcohol? This one's definitely an older one, 2018. I don't know what it is today, maybe more. Alcohol, $254 billion Americans spent on alcohol in 2018. Now, I didn't look up all the rest of them. But how many other people are trying to find meaning in life, trying to find fulfillment in life through other pleasures? Like, what about sexuality? Right? What about sex outside of marriage? I looked these statistics up. I didn't write them down, but uh, you, can go, you can go Google it and find it. There's one study I read that on average, uh, Americans have 7.2 uh, different sexual partners. 7.2. No, I think that's over, you know, maybe their lifetime, but 7.2. We, we ought to have one, and that's the one we marry. Our, our, our wife, if we're male, or our, our, or our husband, if, we're, if you're female, right? That ought to be the only sexual partner that you ever have all of your life. But how many people are trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction through sex? How many people are viewing sex as just a just a pleasurable thing? Don't understand it as as a uh, covenant uh, aspect uh, aspect of an. Don't understand it as an aspect of covenant marriage, right? Between a man and a woman for a lifetime. Don't understand that it's there for a purpose for us to unite in a bond in a way to become that one flesh union, uh, unlike any other any other union on planet Earth to procreate, to produce children, to produce godly offspring, those as God has called us as Christians to do, and to multiply and replenish this earth and understand that children are like a, you know, like a, like arrows in a quiver. We send them out into the world after they've been sharpened and discipled and trained to go and, and be warriors for the kingdom of God. We don't, we don't even look at family that way anymore. And you know, it's, it's a sad thing in our society just to look out at the world and how families are and how, how so many children have so many different father or, or their, their siblings have different fathers and different mothers, right? It, it is craziness of what we see a lot of times in our world. And we, we as a society have be, are beginning to think that that's just normal. And it is a direct attack on the nuclear family by the enemy. And it's been going on for a long time. It's not anything new, right? But it is an attack on the nuclear family going back to God's created order. And, and Satan is trying to say, hey, that sex thing, that, that, that has no special purpose for this nuclear family marriage covenant relationship kind of thing. No, that, that's just a pleasurable thing you ought to enjoy with whoever you want to enjoy it with. Well, that can be further from the truth. It is a sacred thing that ought to be saved for that marriage relationship. And what about this? When we think about sexuality and we think about people trying to find meaning, right, and, and fulfillment in life. Don't think that's not part of what's going on with the homosexuality, alphabet mafia, right, and the transgender movement of our day right now. You know, homosexuality is almost taking a back seat in, in, in the headlines right now because of transgenderism. 
But that that's that's kind of where it started a little bit, right? It started with the free sex movement, and then love is love. You ought to be able to love man or woman or whoever you want to love, right? And then we try to find that meaning and fulfillment in those kinds of relationships. And all they are is empty, uh, you know, empty, sad, uh, you know, distorted pictures of what real true marriage is all about. And then what about transgenderism? Trying to find meaning in life because you're not satisfied with yourself and who God made you to be. And so you think that if you just declare yourself to be something else, that that's going to bring fulfillment when the majority of those who undergo those kinds of of treatments and transitions uh, ultimately live a life that is constantly dedicated to medicating themselves or or, uh, having to go through surgery after surgery or treatment after treatment to maintain the facade that they are trying to live in order to try to find this fulfillment and don't think that's not an attack on the the nuclear family as well because they beat these children these adults become mutilated in their uh sexuality not only uh, mentally but physically and they can never reproduce anymore and never fulfill uh, ultimately the god-given role that he gave to marriage and families and, and those kinds of things and so all of that people are trying to find fulfillment and meaning apart from god and they're trying to find it in all the craziness of this world things that make them feel good or feel better and you're never going to find meaning in those things. You're going to go deeper and deeper into the abyss of despair unless you turn to God. And you can go on and on with these analogies, right? People trying to find meaning in careers. People trying to find meaning in, in education. Whatever it is, trying to find meaning, uh, you know, or at least escape the reality that they're living in through drugs and alcohol and, and all those kinds of things. And maybe even sex addiction and all those kinds of things that people battle with today. Maybe that's why we have all these promiscuous relationships going on where people trying to, you know, cover up things or find fulfillment in things that they'll never, ever, ever be able to find meaning and fulfillment fulfillment in and the sad reality the people who are who are leading this world today are are championing championing they're 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 cheering them on right uh, and, and they're telling all the rest of us you're the crazy lunu loon you know lulus if you don't or loony bugs if you don't believe all this stuff you'll never find true meaning apart from god Uh, This is a quote from a person named John Simmons. Again, I got this out of the commentary, but I thought it was pretty good. It says, if God, who created happiness, is not the starting point in your pursuit of happiness, you can never hope to find it. And you will ultimately end up just as empty as the members of dystopian London and the Savage. Uh, And again, that's in one of those dystopian novels. I forget which one it came from. But that's what he's saying. You're never going to find happiness apart from God. You're never going to find meaning apart from God. You can find fleeting happiness, you know, maybe a momentary uh, meaning in whatever it is you're doing, but it's all fleeting. True meaning, true lasting meaning comes ultimately and always from God. Listen to Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore if you want true lasting pleasure it comes from a relationship with god if you want true lasting meaning and joy and happiness and fulfillment in your life it starts and it ends with god 
So if you haven't bowed your knee to Jesus Christ today, if you haven't come to faith in Jesus Christ today, then you need to do that first. That's, that's the first step in finding true meaning in this life. And then you will see the ultimate glory and grace and mercy and majesty of God and total meaning in the life that is to come. Because there is more to this life. Right? This is not the end all and be all. This is not all there is. There is far more. And that's why we can endure even the momentary difficulties of this life. Because we know that in Christ there is more. And what he has in store for us is greater than any momentary setback or momentary pain that we experience in this life that we have today. So that's uh, that's Solomon chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. The, the vanity of uh, self-indulgence or pleasure. Next time we'll 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 finish out probably chapter two, and so until then, I hope the the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you. But hey, don't forget uh, if you got any suggestions or ideas about um, on theology Thursdays, systematic theology, church history, something to, uh, of that uh, kind of thing, let me know. Um, and just put in your mind, once we get through the Ecclesiastes, it's only 12 chapters. Now, obviously, you see it's going to take us longer than 12 weeks to go through it. But it's only 12 chapters when we get done. We need to, we need to think about where we're going somewhere else. So I like to alternate between Old and New Testament. So if there's something in the New Testament, we've already done Revelation. So if there's something in the New Testament you want to think about or, or work through, uh, just shoot me a comment. And I will be glad to entertain that as a possibility. So until next time, have a blessed and wonderful week.